Okay, welcome back once again to the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg, ranting at you in the wee hours of September 10th from my apartment on Manhattan's Lower East Side, which means that by the time you're listening to this, by the time it's up on the web, it's going to be September 11th, the 20-year anniversary of that uh, horrific day which now seems so long ago and yet is still so relevant to what's going on in the world. And on my podcast of July 29th, I pledged that on September 11th, I would revisit the whole question of Afghanistan because I had gone out on a limb and uncharacteristically made a prediction that Kabul would fall to the Taliban on September 11th. And rather than being too pessimistic and alarmist, it turns out that I was way too optimistic because the, the Taliban actually took Kabul on August 15th, faster than even I had anticipated. And given all of the rhetoric which was employed in the immediate aftermath of 9-11 about bringing freedom to Afghanistan and the rights of women and girls and others who were suffering at the hands of the Taliban, what a profoundly ignominious 20th anniversary this is turning out to be. Does anybody remember what George W. Bush initially called the military campaign in Afghanistan? Operation Enduring Freedom. What a bitter irony to that name from the perspective of September 11th, 2021. And back then, in the year 2001, I was, uh, you know, of course, producing my radio show at WBAI, whose broadcast studios at that time were on Wall Street, just a couple of blocks away from what had been the World Trade Center and became known as Ground Zero. So the area was blocked off for a few weeks and I couldn't get down there. A few weeks had gone by before I was um, actually back on the airwaves again. And I had written a kind of a, uh, a radio rant or a radio manifesto with my statement about what had just happened and what the response of progressives in New York City and the United States should be. I'm going to go back and uh, read a few paragraphs from that and see how it holds up 20 years later. Because I did, again, uncharacteristically make a couple of predictions in this text. So let's see from the vantage point of 20 years later if my predictions were borne out. This is what I read on the air of WBAI on September 18th. So actually it was just a week just a week after the attack, according to the Moorish Orthodox Radio Crusade website. That was the name of the show, the Moorish Orthodox Radio Crusade. This is what I read on the air on September 18, 2001. Excerpts from what I read on the air. The first thing that needs to be said is that attacks on civilians are not acceptable under any circumstances. This means that the military response now being planned by the Bush administration is wrong for exactly the same reason that the attacks on our city were wrong. We are legitimately angry. We feel personally violated and want desperately to believe that we can do something to win retribution and expunge this invisible enemy. But I offer only the following bitter pill. Opposing our government's war moves is the only action which holds any hope whatsoever of de-escalating the situation 
rather than making it worse. The usual Pentagon pseudo-surgical strikes against a country which hasn't known a minute of peace for 20 years will only feed the power of the Taliban and Osama bin Laden. And suppose the Pentagon succeeds in taking out the Taliban. Then what? Occupy Afghanistan and wage a counterinsurgency war against the jihad for the next 20 years? The U.S. has absolutely no power, much less responsibility, to give Afghanistan a stable government. The country is already destroyed thanks to two decades of superpower proxy wars. There is no infrastructure, no indigenous managerial class, no economy other than opium. Getting all that back would take another Marshall Plan, and this is not what Bush has in mind. An occupation of Afghanistan would be a hemorrhage of America's national wealth and possibly the same kind of hopeless quagmire that was instrumental in bringing down the Soviet empire. It would also dramatically escalate terrorist attacks against us, strengthen anti-West fanaticism throughout the Islamic world, destabilize America's Arab allies, and likely spark the jihad that bin Laden and his pals are pining for. Thus I wrote on my radio rant read over the airwaves of WBAI on um, September 18th, 2001, exactly a week after the 9-11 attacks. And I will note that um, I actually invoked the possibility of the U.S. occupying Afghanistan for 20 years, and that proved to be exactly what it was. Technically not under occupation for all of that period, but with a uh, U.S. troop presence on the ground and the U.S. waging a counterinsurgency war in Afghanistan for 20 years. What turned out to be even more grim than what I had foreseen is that after those 20 years, Afghanistan would return to the status quo ante of Taliban rule. (sighs) All right, some of my predictions did not pan out. The U.S. intervention in Afghanistan did not escalate terrorist attacks against the United States. Yet it did strengthen anti-West fanaticism throughout the Islamic world. But most of the victims have been Afghans and Pakistanis and Arabs and Africans. And there's always been a kind of a tension within jihadism or Islamist extremism, whatever you want to call it. We'll get to the whole question of nomenclature later. But there's always been a a tension between, uh, you know, wanting to bring the war to the West and impose its hegemony within the Islamic world. And uh, to understand how these two imperatives relate to one another and form a kind of unity, I'm going to uh, turn to my, uh, my own formula that I devised for understanding this question. I first came up with this text more than 10 years ago now, when things were really hot and heavy in Iraq, the Sunni insurgency against the U.S. and its client regime. It's perhaps somewhat less relevant today, but I think the, uh, the fundamentals still hold. There is really a three-way civil war underway throughout the Islamic world. The three interrelated conflicts are, one, Sunni versus Shia, two, fundamentalism versus secularism, and three, national liberation versus imperialism. 
The sad irony is that it is the social inequities that underlie this last contradiction, national liberation versus imperialism, that provide the raw material of endemic rage, which is increasingly exploited, siphoned off, as it were, into the prior two. Fundamentalists conflate secularism and imperialism, given a propaganda boost by their neocon enemies, who do likewise and pose the only alternative as a purified hegemonic Islam, which must, of course, crush internal heresy. So even as some political space, significant political space, did open up in Afghanistan after the fall of the Taliban, the dynamic of um, imperialism and militant radicalization fueling each other continued. Over the course of the past 20 years, a staggering 50,000 Afghan civilians have been killed, according to the Pentagon's own estimates, which are almost certainly lowballed. Now, many of them, probably the majority of them, were killed by the Taliban, but many thousands as well were killed in U.S. airstrikes. And every civilian killed in U.S. airstrikes met more angry cannon fodder to be exploited by the Taliban and later by ISIS. The war in Iraq similarly radicalized and spread Sunni jihadism and led to the emergence of ISIS. Although I must add that that's only half of the equation in terms of understanding the emergence of ISIS. Because remember, ISIS stands for the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria, although they no longer call themselves that. Now they just consider themselves the Islamic State, period. But initially it was the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria. And it was the brutalities of the Assad regime in Syria, which also had the effect of radicalizing and spreading Sunni jihadism, and also contributed to the emergence of ISIS, at least as much as the barbarities of U.S. imperialism on the Iraqi side of the border. But apart from a, a couple of spectacular attacks, particularly the uh, horrific massacre in Paris in November 2015, ISIS has been far more concerned with opposing its totalitarian rule in the Islamic world, much more concerned with that than carrying out terrorist attacks against the West. And those targeted by ISIS have been overwhelmingly, not Westerners, but Arabs and Kurds and Yazidis. And now I'm going to read a quote, not for myself this time, but from uh, the most recent edition of um, Foreign Affairs. The publication of the Council on Foreign Relations, which I subscribe to, because if you want to know what the uh, elite global management and architects of empire are thinking, the best thing to do is to read their own house organ. <laughs> and uh, the most recent issue, of course, the September-October 2021 issue is uh, dedicated to 9-11, 20 years later and the whole question of who won the war on terror. And I'm going to uh, note a particular essay by Daniel Byman of Georgetown University and the Brookings Institution, amusingly entitled The Good Enough Doctrine, Learning to Live with Terrorism, in which he's arguing for that which is happening anyway, the U.S. downsizing its military commitments overseas, to fight jihadism, 
And, uh, you know, of course, repositioning to uh, counter Russia and China, blah, blah, blah. But um, <clears throat> he's basically arguing for calling it a draw with the jihad. And he writes, quote, Jihadi terrorism will not go away, but its biggest impact will be felt mainly in parts of the world where U.S. interests are limited. Washington must therefore think hard about where to deploy its counterterrorism resources. Although violence in Chad or Yemen is catastrophic for those countries, its impact on U.S. security is small, end quote. Very revealing. And of course, you know, he wrote that just a few months before the fall of Kabul to the Taliban. And, you know, now it's so clear that um, Afghanistan is a perfect example of the model that uh, Daniel Byman was advocating, where as long as the Taliban pledge not to attack the West, not to harbor al-Qaeda or any other elements that would organize terrorist attacks against the West, they can impose their tyranny on Afghanistan. And Afghan lives don't matter. And in fact, we can even be de facto allies with the Taliban against ISIS and use them as proxies to fight ISIS. So dystopian. And what drives me crazy is that there are so many places around the world now where jihadist insurgencies are carrying out terrible atrocities, massacres, even to the point of genocide, and it barely gets any news coverage. It just gets perfunctory write-ups on the wire services. And one of the things that I fanatically do on Counter Vortex, my website, is to follow these forgotten wars and to actually look at the, uh, the news coverage from the actual regions and write little digests based on that coverage. Because, of course, you know, the local newspapers in these various countries which are being torn apart are not doing perfunctory coverage. They're doing serious and in-depth coverage. But apart from, you know, a few fanatics like me, nobody outside those countries looks at those websites. So um, apart from the four cases that actually do get some media attention in the West, which is to say Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, and Yemen, there are so many just clean, forgotten wars, the continuing low-level insurgency in Pakistan with serial massacres of the Shiite Hazara people over the past several years, the brutal insurgency and counterinsurgency in the Sinai Peninsula of Egypt, even the ongoing insurgency in Somalia, where the U.S. did have a military presence, gets very little mainstream coverage, even as it has started to spill into neighboring Kenya, the situation in the Sahel nations of West Africa is absolutely terrifying. Hundreds killed this year in mounting massacres. Peasants gunned down while working their fields in Mali, Niger, Burkina Faso, Chad, by various you know, local insurgent conglomerations which have declared their loyalty either to al-Qaeda or to ISIS on a kind of a franchise model the Boko Haram insurgency in Nigeria, which is now also spreading into Cameroon, and the ISIS-linked insurgency, which has emerged in northern Mozambique, which has now prompted 
a multinational military intervention led by Rwanda, but with participation from several other African countries, to very little attention from the outside world. Insurgency continues in the Philippines, in the, in the mostly Muslim island of Mindanao. In 2018, the country's brutal president, Rodrigo Duterte, waged a five-month military campaign to take back the uh, Mindanao town of Marawi, which had been seized by Islamist militants. With horrific atrocities committed by both sides, aerial bombardment, etc., hardly made a ripple in terms of consciousness here in the United States, despite the U.S. role in unleashing this nightmare, with W. Bush taking Osama bin Laden's bait after 9-11 and launching a global military campaign, which, as I predicted on September 18th, 2001, although I didn't get everything right in that essay, in that, in that radio rant, but the one thing I did get right is that Bush's military campaign would have the effect of further radicalizing the jihad or political Islam or whatever you want to call it. And inevitably, of course, I'm going to have to uh, <clears throat> critique what the responses have been to 9-11 and its 20-year aftermath from my own comrades on the left, which initially, of course, was, uh, you know, the standard Chomsky in line of... Um, Oh, well, why do you think they hate us? Because we're an imperial power, which is kind of a no-brainer, articulated in far more vulgar terms by Ward Churchill with his um, charming little chickens coming home to roost comment. And I am going to counter this attitude by uh, turning to some brief words from Karima Benoun, the uh, Algerian-American human rights attorney, wrote a book in uh, 2013 entitled Your Fatwa Does Not Apply Here, Untold Stories from the Fight Against Muslim Fundamentalism. Really excellent book in which she travels throughout the Muslim world, interviewing and profiling secularists and feminists who were standing up to the jihadists, and doing so in a way which does not give an inch to the propaganda of U.S. imperialism or Zionism, a point she was very clear about in her writings from Gaza and the West Bank. But she wrote in that book in 2013, one of the characteristics of Western left-of-center responses to Muslim fundamentalism has often been to talk about something else whenever the topic comes up. The anniversary of 9-11 is a time to criticize the U.S. government. An Afghan woman having her nose cut off by the Taliban becomes a platform for saying that there is violence against women everywhere. I think when we talk about Muslim fundamentalism, we have to actually talk about it, with the word it in italics, end quote. And I'm reminded, just by way of example, when in April of 2015, Shabab insurgents came across the border from Somalia into Kenya and massacred nearly 150 students at Kenya's Garissa University. Once again, winning the merely perfunctory media coverage in the West and then being promptly forgotten. And then in November of that year, ISIS carried out its attack in Paris, which killed a roughly equal number of people. And of course, 
elicited a frenzy of media coverage. And all of a sudden, people who never noticed it when it actually happened started posting news clips about the April massacre in Kenya on my Facebook feed. So leftists only seem to notice terrorism in Nigeria and Kenya and so on when it manifests in places like Paris as an excuse to gloat at the media's racist double standard. But that itself is also a racist double standard. That is also the objectification of victims. Overlooking the deaths of Africans, except when it is time to relativize the deaths of Europeans, is being precisely as racist as the, you know, MSM, mainstream media, that the lefties love to hate. And, you know, what I propose and have been attempting to uh, communicate in my work these past 20 years is that we not emulate the imperial management in treating the victims of jihadism as expendable objects, as long as they aren't European or American, but actually treat the peoples in countries under both imperialist and jihadist attack as human beings. This seems to be a very radical concept, unfortunately. All right, I'm going to have a couple of words to say about the whole question of nomenclature. Some of my friends object to use of the term jihadist as stigmatizing Islam, but the extremists do, in fact, see themselves as waging a jihad. The Revolutionary Association of the Women of Afghanistan also uses that word. The um, truly heroic feminists and secularists, who I discussed in the last podcast, Rawa, Revolutionary Association of the Women of Afghanistan, they also use the term jihadist. If it's good enough for them, I don't think it should be verboten. Uh, secularists in the Arab world tend to use the more precise term political Islam. And uh, the civil opposition in Iraq, secularists, feminists, trade unionists, Marxists, etc., who were opposing the U.S. occupation and the sectarian insurgents alike, and who, um, back uh, 10, 15 years ago, I was involved in uh, doing support work with them, actually uh, met and interviewed their leadership. They uh, spoke about um, Iraq and the Middle East generally being between two poles of terrorism, that of imperialism and that of political Islam, which both, of course, need to be opposed. And both, in fact, were opposed in the one real shining moment of, um, of hope and possibility that we've seen over the course of these past bloody 20 years, which was the Arab Revolution of 2011. Although with the uh, partial exception of Tunisia, where it began, the ultimate results were pretty disastrous for reasons we can discuss in another podcast. But right now, I'm going to uh, make note of another very, very significant glimmer of hope on this extremely dreadful landscape, dreadful political landscape, which are the mounting demonstrations in Afghanistan against Taliban rule, not just in Kabul, but in cities across the country, in Kunduz and in Jalalabad and in Mazar-e-Sharif, with women in the vanguard demanding that their rights not be repealed, 
and demanding that they have full participation in, in whatever new political order is to emerge. And they have continued to take to the streets in defiance of repression with Taliban fighters not only beating, but actually firing upon protesters. And several killed already. And yet the protests continue. And the Taliban have just issued an order that they are not going to uh, tolerate any more protests. Very ominous. So it is imperative in the coming days, weeks, months, and probably years that we watch Afghanistan. And not only the uh, U.S. drone strikes, which will certainly continue against ISIS, and what Biden is calling over-the-horizon operations in Afghanistan, but also watch the civil resistance to the Taliban, which is proving to be intransigent and courageous, and has been meeting with repression. And if the Taliban make good on their promise, is going to be meeting with more repression. The heroic protesters in Afghanistan, with women in their vanguard, urgently demand our solidarity. And solidarity, once again, begins with at least knowing that they exist and paying attention and loaning them what voice and visibility we can. And certainly, I will be watching the situation in Afghanistan and loaning what support I can to the civil resistance watching very closely in the days to come on my website, countervortex.org. This has been Bill Weinberg with The Counter Vortex. You can check us out online at countervortex.org. If you support our work and you want to keep this dissident voice alive, please support us on Patreon. Become a patron for just $1 or $2 per weekly podcast. It will make a big Difference. Patreon.com slash countervortex. Join the countervortex, join the resistance, and rant on you next time.